the accidental engineer welcome all max of the accidental engineer here today i have the pleasure of ashley edwards joining us welcome ashley hi thanks for having me it's my pleasure uh for our audience that might not know you can you share a little bit about yourself what you do professionally um, and we'll get into how you got there sure uh right now i am senior manager on the product science team at snap um, I will be heading up um, our platform research function, which is research that focuses on non-end users, meaning advertisers, developers, creators, and publishers. Um, and yeah, I have been in this role for about five months. Um, prior to that, I was at Netflix, where I also led research around localization, globalization, accessibility, product inclusion. Um, and before that, I was at Instagram, where I worked on growth and um, special countries research. Uh, so yeah, so research, product research is my bread and butter, and uh, standing up research orgs is my current role as of late. For our audience that might not know, you have a background in academia. You've got a PhD. Uh, I think there's a fair amount of our audience who might be in university, whether undergrad or grad programs, or they themselves have graduated from grad programs and are curious about how your personal story led you out of academia and into industry, especially at the kind of hot tech companies that you work at. <laughs> hot tech companies. I love that. Um, well, so as an undergrad, um, I, I went to UNC for my undergrad and my major was information science. And I really did not even know about research as like a profession. You know, I knew the professors did research, but I didn't really think of it as something that I could do one without being a professor, but like two kind of independently outside of academia. Um, I kind of got my feet wet with research by doing um, an honors thesis project, um, which looked at how to improve faceted search on mobile devices. Faceted search is um, a search where you kind of like drill down in a tree. Uh, we don't really use this kind of thing anymore. And this was way back in the um, 2000, <laughs> the 2000s. It, it was way back in 2011, which is only 10 years ago, but it feels like a, a lifetime ago in terms of tech years. Um, and really doing that honors thesis helped me understand, hey, one, research is really fun and cool. And two, you can also do it on non, you know, stuffy academic topics. So that research project, that honors thesis project is really what kind of springboarded me, sprung board, is really what kind of pivoted me into doing a PhD. Uh, now, the PhD is all about teaching you the rigors and the fundamentals of research, and then also kind of building you up so that you can execute on your own big project. Um, and as part of the PhD, I was like, let me try out this teaching thing for a little bit. So I taught a class for a semester, and that quickly uh, told me that I did not think I would be cut out to be a professor. In part because it was like doing a presentation every day, multiple times a day. And that was just so nerve wracking for me that I thought I like the research part. I don't really like the teaching part. So I started to look for what careers would look like in terms of research outside of academia. And I saw that UX research slash product research was an option. 
um, there really weren't very many resources for me as a PhD student to understand how to even bridge that gap between academia and product or UX research. So um, there were a few people in my cohort who had um, graduated and gone on to roles at like Google and Salesforce. And so I basically kind of landed in California after I graduated my PhD and talked to them. And I was like, hey, how did how did this happen? And they were like, well, I basically had, had to kind of cold apply and really, you know, struggle to 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 even speak the lingo of like non-academic research. So what I did was uh, invested very heavily into networking. Um, I started reaching out on LinkedIn to people who had product or UX researcher in their job description to uh, invite them to have a cup of coffee with me um, back when we could still meet in person and it was <laughs> more commonplace. Um, so I did a couple of these coffee chats and I met actually a guy who was contracting at Facebook. And I was like, hey man, you know, how did you get this job? And he said, there's a lot of cool jobs available on this design user research listserv. So he, so he added me, I introduced myself and um, a couple of jobs came along and I applied for them. Um, it was six months before I heard a callback about a job. And during that time, I um, had gone on a couple of like random phone interviews that never went anywhere and had applied to, I don't know how many, too many jobs <laughs> that I care to think about and often not really ever heard anything. Um, so I got the call for Facebook and I think it was a few months after I'd applied. So when they reached out to me, I was kind of like, this is great, but how did you guys even find me? And they were like, oh, you put in an application on this date. And I was like, I thought this was a no because you hadn't responded. <laughs> um, but they brought me in for a contract position for Instagram to interview. Um, so I get there, I go into the interview, and then one of my interviewees uh, in the course of us having lunch together, she was like, oh, you know, it's so great that you're going to be transitioning from an academic academic life into a full-time position on Instagram. And I was like, is this a full-time interview loop? And <laughs> so I was in the full-time interview loop, which, you know, call it fate, um, but I got the job. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was a, a pivotal moment. Um, since then, I've made it a personal mission of mine to help coach people who are coming from academia or academic backgrounds who have never broken into tech or other types of research to really help them, you know, understand what the differences are and just like how to speak the lingo, how to interview. Um, yeah, I, that was a long winded answer, but let me know. <laughs> that not was at okay. all, not at all. There's some stuff that would be really helpful to drill down on, like, for example, your state of mind when you were still in uh, grad school, like, I, I get the learnings you got out of teaching and not wanting to get into teaching in a deeper way. Was your uh, PhD advisor supportive? Did you reach out before doing the type of cold networking you were describing to the, did you reach out to those other grad students who preceded you from UNC who joined uh, tech companies? Like, I guess who coached you and, and encouraged you to try this, what some might consider, you know, aggressive cold outreach? Was, mm -hmm. was there someone who preceded you that told you this is the way to do it? 
Um, no, not really. Uh, my PhD advisor was not very supportive of me going into a non-academic career because uh, she was like, you have spent all this time doing all this rigorous training. And, you know, she kind of thought of it as a waste in, in tech. Um, even now, I, I'm still involved in my academic community of practice. And even now I run into people that are like, you could have had such a bright future in the area that you're in. And now you're busy talking to teens and asking whether they like the dog filter on their face or not, which, you know, <laughs> um, I, I can understand their perspective, but I, I didn't have a ton of um, people giving me advice. Um, when I reached out to the, to the students who had gone ahead of me, a lot of what they um, described as strategies was just as cold applying. So that's what I did. Um, and in addition to LinkedIn networking, I, I tried every single thing that I could think of. I, I went online and looked for meetups and I went to a lot of like research meetups, hoping one to network and then two, just to ask someone, Hey, like, how does this work? You know, do you have an academic background? How did you make this work? And, um, through meeting people, I was like, how can I approximate, you know, going to all these meetups It's LinkedIn, you know, connecting with people on LinkedIn. Um, and in addition to LinkedIn, meetups, cold applying, using this listserv, um, I also tried to connect with recruiters. Um, so people who are kind of recruiting for contract positions for these companies just to be like, hey, if you see anything that you think my resume would be good for, reach out to me. So I was just like trying a number of different strategies um, because I think coming out of um, grad school, you have this mindset of like, I'm doing all this rigorous training, I must be like, super high in demand. A lot of people in grad school were like, Oh, you're gonna get go out there, you know, to California, you're gonna get a job like that. And that really wasn't how it was. I mean, I really had to try. Um, so it was a bit of a like, adjustment, kind of readjusting my expectations. Um, and, you know, it took so long to, to find a job that there were moments where I was like, I don't know if this is going to happen. And so I, um, took, uh, my parents had given me a little bit of, um, money for a graduation present. I took it and one, I signed up for a Coursera course in interaction design, figuring that would make me more appealing as a researcher, um, having some design skills, which is actually has been really helpful in learning like Figma and, balsamic and a lot of prototyping tools that was super helpful for that and the other um the other set of money besides what I used on coffee chats went to a cosmetology program because I was like this is never going to happen for me I'm going to have to learn how to cut hair you know <laughs> so um so it was tough so I would say that I got ad advice I collected advice from people along the way but there was no one mentoring and coaching me which is why I I'm committed to being that person for people um, and being a resource because I think it was it was hard to kind of go it alone. Totally, totally. I love I love the concept of reinvesting your graduation present into coffee chats. <laughs> it's just an awesome, <laughs> awesome concept. And I I can echo like some of the feelings of uncertainty you had about being able to land the job. Like I remember there being a huge delay between when I first applied to my first job in tech and when they actually called me back and said, come on for an onsite, I think it was like six months or something crazy like that. So I, I, I can echo that these are, <laughs> these are realities. And I, now, now you're on the other side of the table and you, you, you are a manager and you're a hiring manager and 
you see the other side of the, not negotiating table, but the other side of the table that's evaluating candidates and arguing for the financials to justify hiring people and knowing the candidates that come across your desk and the candidates that your team interviews, uh, what are some of the, I guess, common points of feedback that um, maybe that you might not give uh, to candidates, but that are maybe not common disqualifiers, but things you're looking for, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking for people who have research fundamentals. Um, This was a question I got all the time when I was at Netflix. People would message me on LinkedIn and say, you know, how do I break into entertainment research or streaming research? And I would say as a hiring manager, I don't, I need you to have research fundamentals. You don't need to know the domain very well. It is much harder for me to teach research basics, like how to interview, how to do quantitative research, you know, how to lead an ethnographic study, than it is for me to teach you the particular domain of what we're in. I'm also looking for people who have an openness to learn different things and to stretch outside of their comfort zone. I'm a mixed methods researcher, or I was when I was an IC, um, which means I do both qualitative and quantitative work. And in my uh, sort of travels as an IC through various companies, I see people who are like, I'm strictly qual, like I I won't do any quant. You know, I don't know anything about that. I don't want to know anything about that. Or people who are quant that are like, "Mm, qual, you know, I don't need to know anything about qual. And while I know I just said that it's important to have a mastery of a few methods and uh, like a skill set developed in some areas, I do think um, knowing the fundamentals of the other side of it, if you're qual or quant, is super helpful and can only strengthen your research um, and your research approaches. Um, even if you don't know, if you're a, quali- a qualitative researcher, that's your skill set and you don't know the fun, like you don't know the um kind of complicated analyses for quant. At the very least, you should have the lingo under your belt so you can talk to a quant researcher or a data scientist and uh, help them help you in conducting a quant analysis. So those are two things that um, off the top of my head are things that I'm really looking for. Um, Yeah, I mean, as researchers, I'm expecting a kind of natural curiosity, you know. Um, uh, I'm looking for curious people, people who um, have a good idea of how to formulate questions. um, And uh, yeah, want to continue to dig deeper into complex problems. I mean, uh, that is at the core of our profession. So um, so yeah, those are the kinds of things that I'm looking for in candidates. We, we, we've got a very broad audience being the accidental engineer. So we're, we're including people in our audience who may not be seeking out the, the research path uh, career-wise, but are, I think, probably deeply interested in what are the research methodologies that uh, are put to use at tech companies, like whether they're qualitative research methods or quantitative research methods, what what are some of the names of them so they can go look them up on Wikipedia or uh, learn a bit more? Yeah, I want to say that folks from non from um, non traditional research backgrounds, I think, are also super interesting, and to, to me, I'm interested in them as candidates in part because. Um, again, they, they, you might not think you do, but you do have some of the fundamentals. So for example, um, people who are statisticians, like you have quant- quantitative skills, um, people who do like customer insights or customer service, like you, it, believe it or not, you are trained in lines of inquiry. 
in terms of getting to the root of people's problems so we can build on that. So in terms of methods, so when we think like qualitative methods, that could be things like one-on-one -on -one interviews where what we're doing right now, um, where, you know, it's just two people talking, uh, focus groups, which is more one person leading a kind of group conversation. Um, there are also things like journey mapping, where you um, basically diagram like how does one, how does someone move through the steps of a task if they're, that they're trying to accomplish on an app or a service. Um, also, usability is a huge part of, of qualitative research, which is, yeah, basically understanding when people interact with this thing, what are some of the challenges that come up and where are places where they were like, that was really easy. You know, I'd love to, I'd love to continue doing that. Um, separate from qualitative research is quant, which I mentioned, quantitative research. And some common methodologies in those are surveys. Um, uh, and you can set up also survey experiments. So surveys, everyone knows what a survey is, I hope, but it's, you know, set of questions um, organized, uh, you know, to understand different phenomena. And surveys may seem straightforward, but you've got to really be extremely careful with your wording, with your sample size determination, with how you set up your analyses. Um, similar to surveys or survey experiments where you like compare different groups depending on the um, surveys that you take. And survey analyses can get super complex. You know, the quant uh, researchers that I know um, regularly try to do like Latin squares to understand, which that's a complicated term that I don't think I would do justice to explain. I just know it exists. Um, but they, <laughs> they do squares to understand um, like how each of their cells will interact with each other. And it can get really complex. Also, there's simple kind of behavioral data analysis, which leverages statistical methods. So things like regression, t-tests you know, uh, ANOVAs, um, if you can do any multi-level modeling. I did multi-level modeling as part of my dissertation. Um, I started off actually, you know, to talk a little bit about myself again as a quant researcher, because, you know, that's my bread and butter. I love sitting in front of like a complex set of data and pulling out insights. Um, so yeah, you can go, I, I think as deep, um, you can go super deep in quant, but that's not necessarily required. Um, yeah, I've said a lot. <laughs> no, not at all. That, that, that's literally the point. Uh, the one thing, as as you speak, I I just so our audience knows, this is not a scripted conversation, and we don't have a predefined set of questions. So what you're saying actually helps me understand what to ask next. And what I was thinking of as you were mentioning this is, are there undergrad or grad courses that you remember taking that? were maybe the most aligned to what you today find valuable, like uh, whether that's in terms of vocabulary you learned or methodology techniques that you learned. What what if people are looking at a course catalog, uh, <laughs> what what should they keep their eye out for in terms of course titles? Mm -hmm. Um, so my statistics courses were super helpful between my undergrad and graduate uh, degrees. I've had three years of statistics. That's like six semesters. Um, and as part of my degree, I was, but as part of my, um, grad degree, I was required to take education, statistics in the education department and also statistics, statistics in the psychology department. And so, um, I had a few courses in what they call psychometrics which is how you develop a scale to measure like psycho, uh, psychological phenomena, scales, surveys, et cetera. And that was super helpful for my uh, survey development uh, practice. 
Um, also in the psychology department, um, we, we had a module. This is pretty niche, but if you can get into like any kind of intro to psychology or introduction to psychoanalysis, um, mine was called Introduction to Psychoanalysis. They basically take you through how to interview in that. It's framed in the context of doing like a therapeutic interview with someone, meaning like running a therapy session. They teach you something called how, uh, how to have unconditional positive regard for the person you're interviewing, which is basically to treat all of the responses that you hear as like positive, you know, and to be very positive towards them. Um, that has been super helpful because I have been in some interviews where people have said some wild things to my face. <laughs> <laughs> And I've been able to like leverage that training to kind of keep a straight face and keep nodding, you know, and keep it professional. Um, so these courses, courses like this, I think are not only available in psychology departments, but also in sociology departments. So look out for social psychology courses, um, sociology 101. Um, I, I took both social, so, sociology 101 and social psych as part of my grad degree and super helpful. Um, but yeah, statistics. Uh, if you're looking to get into quant, if numbers excite you and like working with that excites you, then statistics is your best, best friend. Um, so I'm going to out myself here as being someone who struggles with math. Um, I never took calculus, if you can believe it. People look at me and they're like, you have a PhD and you never took calculus? No, I actually repeated math in high school because I struggle with it so much. The reason that I don't think I struggled with statistics is because it's like applied math. So it's like very contextual. Um, it's not as abstract as calculus is as I've heard. I still have no idea. If you put a calc equation in front of me, I would not know what you're talking about. Um, but uh, it's it's applied math. And so I think um, for, for people who may struggle with math, don't let that deter you because it's, it can, it's framed in a way that I think is a lot easier to understand than like geometry for example. Um, yeah. One of the uh, follow-ons that I'm thinking of as you're describing this is re research is often produced to be consumed by other people in the business. And so w one type of research methodology might produce a chart, one research methodology might produce a, a series of quotes from interviews. Uh, what what do you think are i guess the right uh content formats for sharing out the types of research you've done over the years like what what i i know this is a vague question but maybe if you can take your best step <laughs> answering um i think how you share your research findings is very like largely dependent on the organization that you're in and also your stakeholders um so something I always think about is what format will be most easily consumed or received by the people I'm trying to deliver the insights to. Um, so some organizations are super memo heavy, like they capture a lot of uh, findings, thoughts, ideas, and memos. So a memo might be the way to go. I'm, I personally uh, like to rely a lot on visual elements. So graphs, diagrams, also audio and video from interviews. So I will find a way to work that in, whether that's a memo, whether that's a slide deck or anything. Um, but I think it's really context dependent um, because if you're, if your team, for example, like never read slide decks, then that's probably not the form you want to deliver your insights in. 
Um, conversely, I think it's also it also could be um, useful, and I know I'm kind of talking both sides of my mouth here, but it could be useful to try new formats on your team. So while it was a Facebook, I put together the first research podcast, um, and uh, it I'd like to think it was well received. I got a lot of great feedback on it. But the reason that I um, leaned on podcasts as a format is that we already have the audio from interviews. And so it, it, the research already lent itself to a format being consumed in the like audio space. Um, also, it was something people could consume kind of passively. So they didn't have to sit down and, uh, and, and like dedicate or carve out time to read something. They could just put it on and on their way, you know, in on the shuttle in the morning or in their walking between meetings. Um, and uh, so that was something new. Um, and I think people really, really liked it. Uh, so I think you can try new things with your um, with your research insights. When I was at Facebook, I was looking every quarter to do something new. I'm also super passionate about open source software. So it was important to me to do all of my research share outs using open source technology. Um, so my second share out after the podcast was this choose your own adventure game using Twine, which is an open source tool for building like kind of, um, how would you call it? Like mapped stories. Uh, so uh, basically I had as part of this game, you play as a person um, who, uh, is using uh, Instagram and like you take it's a, a user journey exercise, but you kind of go through the user journey as you're as you're playing the game. Uh, so and I and I'd like to think that one also went over pretty well. I got a lot of great great comments on it, but you know it's risky. It's risky because if the um, method that you deliver insights on falls flat, sometimes your insights fall flat as well. Um, so yeah, I would encourage everyone to kind of think about the best balance for tried and true versus taking a risk. What, from what you described, it almost sounds like the research role is a kind of internal communication, internal storyteller of sorts. Uh, you're, you're taking, you know, stories that you hear or collect and, uh, either condensing it or trying to represent uh, those stories you've heard proportionally, uh, or in a way that, uh, is palatable to internal stakeholders, um, that it's gotta be a super interesting role, I guess. I, I, I've never held a, a researcher role. I, maybe in a ad hoc informal way, just writing SQL queries <laughs> and creating charts, but, uh, it sounds like a really, really cool role. Sounds like you're doing a great job of uh, pitching it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm glad because, you know, we can always use more, more talent in the field. And yeah, communication is a huge part of my job um, because there's communication at all stages of the process. You know, in the beginning of the project, um, you, un you get objectives from stakeholders, you digest them and turn them into research objectives and you communicate it back out. You hear what stakeholders, what, um, uh, your users or user base is saying, and you digest that and communicate it back out in terms of product insights for the business. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's just like really good communication is key, I think, to being a researcher and that's internal and external. Cool. Gotcha. What's one, one final question about the management of uh, researchers is like, how how do you how do you manage a research team? What what areas of the business do you think are common to need research, and 
where do you where where do you see the most interesting opportunities in research at tech companies? I guess. You know, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna be that girl and say I think that research is valuable everywhere in the business. But but here's why I have a good reason. <laughs> um, because I think all parts of the business can benefit from uh, thinking about problems deeply and bringing in the customer perspective. Uh, I don't think that's isolated to like growth and acquisition or retention and engagement or you know new new business, new areas. I think every area of the business can benefit from you know someone bringing in not only the voice of the user but spending time to look deeply at um, what's going on within the ecosystem and then kind of feeding back solutions. Um, Areas that I, you know, have seen that benefit a lot from um, from research in particular, to, to actually answer your question, are um, anything in the acquisition space. So if you're trying to acquire new users, new cohorts of users, or um, even trying to win back people who have left, the voice of the, the customer is extremely important in this. Because one, we, we need to know what needs we're not serving. Um, that that don't get new people in. What needs we stop serving to get people to leave? Um, and uh, yeah, how to retain folks? I know I'm a bit biased because I've been working in growth research for the majority of my career. That's you know where I feel most comfortable. That's like first love is growth. You know because I think growth in particular is one of those areas where you can see such immediate impact to the business, which I think comes sometimes from even small changes. Um, so. Growth, meaning acquisition, retention, um, uh, is one of those areas that I think is especially uh, affected by research. I know, I know I said last question, but I've got another last question, which is you've been at extremely international companies, and I think people might not appreciate just how radical... Um, how radically different it is to go from a domestic or national product to an international one. I was wondering if you could share any kind of anecdote where you had an aha moment where you said, wow, international products are quite a bit different than, uh, than I'm used to. Mm. Um, a good example of this is um, a trip that I did with Instagram to France. Um, so we had direct message on Instagram already. But when I switched my app over to French, I noticed that at the live button, like to go live on Instagram, it was translated as on direct, which means to go live. And I'm like, if I'm a French person and I'm trying to DM someone, I'm going to accidentally press this button because it <laughs> says on direct and we're calling direct messages, direct messages. So yeah, it was one of those moments where it's like, uh oh, we really need to, to think about how we're translating things. And I think in every country that I go to, um, as part of my international research, I encourage my teams and I do this myself to go about the act of purchasing a phone and downloading or installing whatever service, you know, app company, et cetera, are using on that phone so you can get the native experience. You'll be able to see all kinds of difficulties with um, uh, devices uh, so we can get more empathy if you think about places like India or Southeast Asia where the devices are way different data limits are way different you know um, 
I've done research trips where I've talked to people about uh, their usage of Instagram and folks would say, I spend my, I, um, I let my phone download my feed from Instagram overnight because I don't have enough data to watch, to like get to see my pictures right away. So we take it for granted in the United States that we can just scroll through our Instagram feed and like we're refreshing it and people are complaining like Instagram never shows me things in the order that I want them in. And this person is waiting all night to see what amounts to like six or seven images in that first swipe. And that's it. You know, he's got to wait another several hours to have enough data and bandwidth to get another seven pictures. So yeah, I think it's so important for teams. That's one one way I think um, research has been impacted by the pandemic is we're doing all of our research remotely now. So we're not able to bring these experiences to life in quite the same way as we would when we traveled. You know, one, one perk of my job has been that I've gotten to travel to so many countries around the world, which I'm so grateful for. But um, part of the traveling to these countries is immersing people in this experience so that they get a little bit out of their, you know, oh, uh, everyone can do this, it's no problem. You know, even even getting folks out of the iOS versus Android bubble. Like I think at a lot of tech companies, cause they're in Silicon Valley in California and America, we get used to like, everybody has an iPhone. And when you go out in the world, most people have Android, you know, in a lot of, in a lot of countries, that's the case in a lot of, a lot of areas. And so just kind of wrapping your head around the fact that those two experiences could be really different is like, you know, a problem. Um, it's something people need to be thinking about. So, uh, you know, I have no idea, you know, when the pandemic will be over, but that's something I'm looking forward to is getting back out and doing field research or, um, you know, well, as a manager, I may not get to go as much as I would like, but I would just love to, you know, be in the field because I think it just is such a unique experience. It brings such richness to the product work and research can help deliver on that. Um, yeah. That is, that is a excellent takeaway and excellent story. Thank you for joining us, Ashley. If people wanted to connect with you, they could, I guess, find you on LinkedIn. Is there another way to get 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 a hold of you? Uh, LinkedIn is the best place. Also, my website, aedwards.rocks. Uh, you can find me there. Sweet. <laughs> yes. Can you believe it? Squarespace offered the .rocks domain. And once I saw <laughs> that, I snapped it up. Uh, it's so weird. <laughs> well, we'll include links in the show notes on the website at theaccidentalengineer.com. Thank you for joining us, Ashley. This was super rad. Yeah, thanks for having me. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.